Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So this last week, great week. I hope you had a great week. It was my wife's birthday. Yeah, and uh, she turned 25 again. Very excited about that. Um, it was funny, we, we went out for, for dinner and, and we had tons of like extra snacks. We always have snacks in our house. We had a lot of extra cake and things like that. And I was reminded of an excuse I use sometimes. Um, you could call it a lie. I call it, a, just kidding, uh, is uh, when I tell my kids that the cake, especially the chocolate cake that I'll, they want to eat before bed, too spicy. <laughs> Too spicy. They won't like it. It's way too spicy for them, which got me thinking. Uh, you know, obviously we do this as parents, but our parents did it to us is maybe they told us some things that weren't quite true growing up or they allow, allowed us to believe some things that weren't quite true. So here's what I want you to do just real fast. Turn to somebody next to you and just tell them a lie that you believed as a child that you didn't realize was a lie until later on, okay? A lie that you believed as a child that you later found out not so true. Okay, um, let, me, let me throw a couple out there and see if these sound familiar to you. Maybe you can, um, maybe you can agree that you've, you, you believe these at one time. If you cross your eyes for too long, they're going to stay like that forever. Anybody was told that growing up? Yeah, okay. Um, if you swallow watermelon seeds, an entire watermelon will grow inside your stomach. I was told that about sunflower seeds as well. Um, that teachers, they live and sleep at school in their classrooms. If you've ever seen one outside, you were just like, why are you out right now? Who lets you out? You're supposed to be at school. Uh, cracking your knuckles will give you arthritis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you swallow gum, it'll stay in your body for seven years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> this one's kind of gross. If you pee in a pool, there's a dye that will turn it bright red so everyone will know it was you. <laughs> I had to look this one up because I, I thought this one was true. It's illegal to turn the dome light on while you're driving. It's not really. It's not a law. You're just, your parents didn't want to see your face. Um, <laughs> you know the song um, in which it says, This Little Piggy Went to Market? We were told that this little piggy went shopping. That's not what they're doing at the market. Yeah, they're going to be a hot dog pretty soon is what that means. Some of you guys just found that out just now. You were, is that what that means? It went to market? Okay, all right. Um, remember when your parents told you you could be whatever you want when you grow up? <laughs> that was hilarious, wasn't it? I remember them telling how that's so, oh, you guys are too much. Anyway, um, so <laughs> these, uh, these, these are funny lies. They're, they're maybe just uh, some silly things that we were told growing up. But we can, of course, point to other lies, lies throughout our life in which they weren't funny, but they had some pretty serious consequences. And so what I want to do today is follow along with what Doyle's been talking about the last couple of weeks and, and dig into this idea of not only spiritual warfare, but, but lies and the nature and origin of lies. And so in order to do that, we need to go back to the very beginning in Genesis. And so if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, we'll go to Genesis chapter three, and the, it'll be on the screens, of course, as well. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. If you're not a church person, you, you've probably at least heard this story before, or you're familiar with it. it it's a popular story, famous story. In fact, in the, in the West, it's a foundational story. And you know what's about to take place, is we're about to have a talking snake. And if you're not a church person, even if you are a church person, you read this and you go, am I supposed to like, take this serious? A talking snake? Even my kids don't believe that there's such thing as talking snakes here. We're, we're tempted to dismiss the story right off the bat because it just seems ridiculous on its face. But I have a couple questions before we do that. Just, and this is me, and maybe this just helps me think through things. Is Do you believe that when this was written a few thousand years ago, that the author thought that animals could talk? No, I'm pretty sure they understood that animals don't speak. They hung out with animals quite a bit, probably more than you and I do. And none of the shepherds went, well, I'm just out here chatting with the sheep, man. We're just seeing how the day is going. No, 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 no. They understood that animals do not speak. And so there's one of two things that's taking place here. Either this is the first and last talking snake in human history, and something miraculous took place, or the author is trying to use a metaphor. Now, to determine which is which, you have to figure out, well, what is the genre of Genesis? Is it like a metaphor? Is it historical? Is it supposed to be read literally? Is it supposed to be read? How do we make? And I'm not going to get into that. Interesting discussion. I, I think it's a fascinating um, uh, thing to wrestle with. But here's the deal is you can land on any point in the spectrum of it's completely literal to it's completely metaphorical or somewhere in between. But the point is still going to be the same. The point that the author is trying to make here is a profound point. The point that he's trying to say is, this is why humanity is the way that it is. This is why the human condition is the way that it is. And so we're not just going to look at the origin stories in Genesis of where we have come from, but also why the human heart and why the world is the way that it is. That we have this conscience, that we know intuitively what is right and what is wrong, and yet we don't do what is right and what is wrong. Like there's this law within us, but we can't quite seem to follow the law. Why is the world like that? And thinkers for thousands of years have been trying to figure out what is in the human heart that knows what it should do, but it does not do it. And so we've come up with different answers. Everybody has to answer this question because everybody looks at the world and goes, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be. Why is that? Some people would say, well, it's poor education or it's a family of origin issues, income inequality, injustice, poor self-esteem, corrupt governments, and, and all of those things are issues. But if we fixed all of those things, would the world and would we as humans be made perfect? I don't think so. Because as we increase in our uh, resources, technology, income, things like that, it doesn't seem to fix the human heart. There's still greed, there's still corruption, there's still wars, there's still abuse. And so what is it within the human heart that seems to be beyond repair, at least by these things? Well, the scripture um, gives us an answer. And before we do that, um, I find this interesting is, is a lot of us find this difficult because we've bought into what's called the myth of progress. It's this underlying belief that we are progressing, that humanity is heading towards some type of utopia, so like we look at the recent history and we say, well, look at all the medical advances that we've had. Look at all the scientific, the technological, even economic advancements that we've had. We think that because we've made advances in those areas, we're advancing in every area. 
like our spirituality and morality and even our relationships. And we will continue to do so until we arrive at this utopia. I believe that this has kind of been difficult to, to believe as of re- recently, though. Like, have you looked at the world and woken up in the last couple of years and go, I'm not sure we're heading towards utopia. I, we might be heading somewhere, but I don't see it being this perfection. Joel and I always have this argument um, about uh, baby boomers versus millennials. I'm a millennial, he's a baby boomer. And he always accuses me, and often millennials, of being pessimistic. Oh, you guys, you're just such a downer. You look at the world and everything is always so upside down and it's always such a... And so I told him, well, maybe, just maybe, you as a baby boomer who was born after World War II in this sliver of time in humanity where everything was up and to the right, you were born on third base and you think you hit a triple, maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe all the success that you've experienced as a generation might be because we're going to be paying for it for a couple more. Oh. Baby boomers are like, that's it. I'm not tithing here anymore. <laughs> just, just kidding, okay? We're just having, I'm glad you have two houses. I can't afford one, but it's good that you have two. Um, that's funny. Whenever we're like discussing these things at staff, uh, Autumn usually jumps in and goes, well, what about the Gen Xers? And we're like, you guys are still here? What are you guys doing? <laughs> Gen Xers? I thought you guys were gone with Nirvana. What happened? Anyway. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We love you, boomers and Gen Xers. We need you to keep paying the bills and don't spend our inheritance and all that good stuff. Okay. <laughs> Some people just got super insulted. It's a joke, people. It's a joke. We know you're going to spend it all. Okay. Uh, okay, back to the point. So, have we really progressed morally and spiritually? I don't know. Uh, I, I think you could argue that we've become more civilized, but has the human heart somehow, have we understood it better? And have we changed it? Or is it still fundamentally the same? I would argue it's still the same. In the ancient authors, um, they may have had better insights into the human heart than even us moderns do. We're distracted. We're apathetic. We got other things. Maybe they knew something about humanity that we have lost along the way. That's why when Scripture says that all of this can be explained by this thing called sin, that all the things that you see that are wrong with the world and that are wrong with you and I, are not consequences of internal, meaning within the universe, things that have been corrupted. But there is a supernatural, there is a, it's something outside of the system that explains why we see the evil inside of the system. Sin is this idea that we have broken God's laws, that we are in rebellion against him. And this sin has spread like a virus into all of humanity. And now it's in our human nature and so we can't help it. We, there is something within the human heart that just rejects God and wants to go our own way. And so if you were going to try to communicate a profound truth like that and you were God, how would you do it? Like, think about it. You have to, you have to tell people, all the way from children to the brightest modern-day thinkers, from all, um, all times and places for the last few thousand years, this is what is wrong with humanity. How would you explain that? I'd probably do it through a story like this. 
And so maybe it's not a, a silly story with a talking snake. Maybe it's trying to tell us something profound about ourselves, is that there is something wrong with humanity, and the answer is sin. That's why people, even to this very day, some of the greatest minds throughout history have said, when I read this account, I believe it's true. And what I mean is, I believe it describes human nature better than any other account given. That this makes sense of why we are the way that we are. All right, let's continue on. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So what's lost in translation here is the sarcasm and irony that Satan uses or the serpent uses here. It should be read, did God really say, like for real, for real? Do you think he's serious about this? I mean, look at all the trees. Do you think he cares about that one tree right there? Did he, did he really say that? And it's so simple and so clever. He's not making a claim. He's simply asking a question. And this question is meant to place doubt in her mind. Does God really mean what he says? As I watch, um, there's this kind of phenomenon, I would like to talk about it in the future, called deconstruction. Uh, and it happens with people's faith, in which their, their faith seems to be unraveling. And it's happened to some uh, public Christians recently. And, and one of the things that begins this process of deconstruction is a simple question like this. Did God really say? Like, do we really understand the scriptures and what was happening in that cultural moment? Does the scriptures really understand what's happening within our culture? Does that actually apply? Can we trust the scriptures? Just a very simple question like that places this doubt in their mind, and it seems to unravel their faith. You don't even have to make an argument. Just ask a simple question. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve responds with God's word. She says, this is actually what God said. I know what the truth is. But Satan's response is not, okay, you got me. (laughs) I guess I'll give up. No, he's going to double down. Here's what he says next. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. See, he doesn't just stop with a question. He inserts the doubt, and then he makes an assertion, a claim. No, here's what I think the truth is. And then he backs it up with an argument. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So here's how he closes the door, uh, closes closes the deal is with an argument. Not a good argument, by the way. He just says, oh, you know, here's why I think that you should be able to do what you want. Now, she already knows what the truth of the matter is. But if she even had a little bit of a doubt, you know what she could do? She could go back to God and say, God, did you say this or did you not say that? But she didn't. Why? Well, because she was looking for a reason. There was something within her heart that wanted this. And as soon as she had just an opportunity, she went for it. And so let's break down what's taking place here. Let's start with the the serpent, the enemy in the story. The serpent obviously represents uh, Satan. And again, us modern people, we bump up against this idea of, okay, now you're trying to tell me not only should I believe about a talking snake, which we kind of discussed already, but this snake represents this figure, Satan. And Doyle talked about this in week one, so I won't spend too much time on it. But 
even the idea that there exists this person called Satan or the devil seems ridiculous to us. The first image that may pop into your mind is, you know, the horns and the tail and the pitchfork or whatever, and, and you're, you're thinking about Halloween, really. And the last time you saw someone dressed up as Satan, they were more naughty than they were nasty. <laughs> ah, you pretend like you didn't see it, like you didn't dress like that? Come on! I know. Anyway, um, that's a cartoon version. That, that's not what the scriptures is talking about here. They're talking about a supernatural entity that is evil. And so my first thought would be, well, if you believe in God, which the large majority of people do, it shouldn't be that difficult to believe in other supernatural entities. It just seems to follow. If there's one and he created others, then, you know, there can be one that, that is evil. The other thing is, how do you explain the evil in the world? Like the, the origin, the pervasiveness, the depth of evil that we see within humanity. How do you explain that? Do you think that it can be explained by something like poor self-esteem? That seems so inadequate to explain the depth of evil. And so maybe we need to look for something stronger. And something more powerful. Something supernatural. And so that's where we get this concept of, of Satan is in the scriptures. Is it, it says that he is a created, supernatural, evil being, a fallen angel. And his goal is to pull us away from God. Ultimately, what he wants to do is he wants to destroy us. And he is fueled by pride. He was created with an incredible amount of power and intellect. But unfortunately, he took that and he wanted to, instead of serve and bow down to God, he wanted to be the ruler of his own destiny. And so what he did is he rebelled. And as he rebelled, um, he wanted to, because of his pride and his jealousy, he wanted to inflict as much pain upon God as he could. Now, how would, how would a being do this? How would you inflict pain upon God? This is an all-powerful, all-knowing being. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you hurt someone like God? Well, I think as a parent, if you were trying to hurt me, the way that you would do it is through my kids. If you want to hurt me, go after my kids. And that's exactly what Satan does. He goes after God's children. And he, what he does is he doesn't just take them away. He, he turns them against him. I've talked to parents before who have uh, both lost children and also had children who have rejected them. And they've told me that the pain of rejection and the loss of that relationship is more painful than the loss of life. And so what does he do here? He does both. He turns us against our creator and then we lose that relationship forever. So if you go, um, if you go to Jesus and uh, you look at his description of Satan, he gives us a little insight into who Satan is. And he's in this argument with some of the religious leaders of the day. And here's what he says in John 8, 44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, this is much different than the popular conception of Satan, is if you were to go and watch a movie, they would portray some supernatural evil as like demonization, like the exorcism, or there's some kind of violence, or there's some kind, that's, that's not what the primary weapon that, that Satan uses is. The primary weapon that he uses is lies. There's a, a book in, written in 1990 by Joseph Nye, and it's called Soft Power, and his basic idea is that 
if you want to influence and shape uh, a person, a group of people, even an entire nation, you have two options. You can use what he calls soft power or hard power. Hard power is what we see happening in Ukraine right now. That's military power. It's coming in with violence and force, making them do what you want them to do. Or you can do what he describes as soft power, which is you can start to shape their preferences through appeal and attraction. So you think about things like social media, movies, music, advertisements. All of those are soft power. They're influencing you through appeal and through desires. And so if you go back to the garden and you think about um, Satan's, uh, the way that he brought Eve down, it wasn't through hard power. Because he could have. He could have, you know, struck her and injected some kind of venom and then she dies. Or he could use soft power, inject her with an idea. And then not only does she get taken down, but everybody around her does as well. Same is true of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is fasting for 40 days and Satan doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't want to battle. He comes with a temptation, an idea, some questions. Now, the uh, temptation and the lies, they may change depending on the person and the culture and the time, but at their core, there's really two things. There's really two desires there. It is to reject and to replace God. And what I mean by this is to, to, to reject God, meaning we find a way to no longer submit to God's authority. So it could be we just simply rebel. You see, this is the prodigal son. We just say, look, I know you're in charge, but I'm out. I'm going to go do my own thing. Or we could create and reimagine who God is, and he becomes a lot like us. In fact, he agrees with everything we think and do. That's usually the American conception of God. Or we can pretend like God doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't care how we act and how we live, and so we're going to continue to live how we want. So we, we get rid of God. We reject God's authority, and then we replace him with ourselves. We become our own gods. Now, we may not be supernatural, and, but what we mean is we become the ultimate authority. We get to define what is good and evil. We get to make the decisions for our life. And so we reject God and we replace him with ourselves. The strategy that, uh, that he uses on Eve, I think, is a strategy he continues to use today in just three steps. Step number one, he comes with a deceptive idea. You can be like God. You can define what is good and evil. You can define reality. Step two, he plays to a disordered desire. Uh, Genesis 3, 6, I'll read it again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. See, she, she had this desire within her. He didn't come with a desire that would, wouldn't move her at all. So he didn't come and go, hey, uh, Eve, did you know that the earth is flat? He didn't do that because she would have gone, what? What are you talking about? I don't even, that doesn't even make sense. I don't care. What do you mean the earth is flat? No, 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 no. He came with a deceptive idea that played to her desires. Hey, don't you love good food? I do. Yeah. Do you want to increase in knowledge and wisdom? How about your status in the world? Don't you want to be greater than God? Yes, I do want all of those things. And so all he has to do is he plays to her desires. He finds out what those things are now. He says, now, I want you to take, I want you to pursue those things, but do it without God. You don't need him. Do it your own way. And so he just dangles those in front of her. Now, you're probably familiar at this point um, that marketing uh, companies, they use these things called algorithms. If you ever go on any websites or anything like that, and you wonder, wow, how, how do they keep knowing what I want to buy? That's an algorithm. 
is what it does is it tracks all the things that you've recently searched, um, all the things that you've looked at, all the things that you say in conversations. Does that not trip you out? Like, have you ever talked about something and then you get on your phone and there's an advertisement for it and then you just go, <gasps> Mark Zuckerberg is listening to me! <laughs> anyway, uh, and what these algorithms do is they figure out the product that you want or that you're most likely to buy, and then they dangle it in front of you at the perfect time so that you'll click. Do you not think that Satan might have some algorithms too? I'm not saying there's a connection between marketing and Satan, but there might be. I don't know. Um, that he doesn't have a profile of all your past, all your fears and your doubts and your expectations and your desires. He knows the kinds of moods that you're in and the relationships. And he says, you know what? I'm going to dangle in front of you something that I know you will desire at the perfect time so that you will take it. That's what he does with Eve. That's what he does with each one of us. And then once we have bought into this lie and it starts to become um, normal in our life and other people begin to buy into it, it then becomes normalized in all of society. It becomes this echo chamber, this self-validating feedback loop where everybody just affirms and encourages the lie and then more people buy into it and more people and it becomes embedded not only in our soul but in an entire society. And then he's got us. Now think about the implications of that for a moment. It's kind of terrifying. Is if you look at our cultural context right now, um, everybody would agree that we're becoming increasingly secular, meaning we're rejecting not just faith, but the, the, the tradition that we uh, were founded upon, which is Christianity. We're rejecting Jesus and all of his objective truths. And so if we are heading away from Jesus and he is the truth, by default, we're embracing more and more lies as a culture. The further we get away from Jesus, the more lies we will buy into. Do you find it hard to trust people these days? Like you turn on the TV and you go, I don't know who's telling me the truth. Every channel has a different spin and everybody, everybody, I don't know. The more we reject Jesus and his truth, the more we will buy into falsehoods and lies. And what's crazy is we as Christians, we just continue to cozy up to culture and go, okay, guide me, inform me, tell me how I should live. That's insane. And I do it too. I like open my mind and go, okay, just dump it all in there. What do you got? Yeah, Netflix? Okay, uh-huh. Tell me more. What music? Yes, yes, yes. Advertisement? That is what I want to buy. Yes, tell me. And I just consume and consume and consume. And we even let our kids do this. We send them to, to places where they go, here's how you should think about sex and sexuality and injustice and race. And, and we they just go, yeah, dump it in their little heads. That's great. That's great. Continue to form them. That's insane. And yet, I do it, and you do it. We just continue to allow culture to shape us. This is why we've really made it intentional to, 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 to say that we as Christians need to live differently. We can't be comfortable with culture anymore. It is we've, for a long time, assumed that culture thinks like we think, that it had a you know, Christian worldview. And so, to, to be honest, we floated away from reading the scriptures and really implementing it in our life, and we kind of just said, well, culture and I, were on the same page, and so it should be fine. Clearly not the case any longer. So now we have to be people who dig deep into the scriptures, understand and allow it to inform and form us and our children. Because if we look to culture, we're just going to continue to buy into more and more lies. All right, real quick, let me finish up here as a 
Let me give you three consequences of believing lies. First one is lies can become truth. When we hear a lie, especially about ourselves, and we internalize it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So think about this. Maybe you were told when you were young that you were unlovable. You know what happens? You start to internalize that and you go, yeah, you're right, I am unlovable. And you start to interact with people like an unlovable person. You start to allow relationships and people to treat you as unlovable. And eventually, give it long enough time, you will become an unlovable person because you believe the lie you're unlovable. Second thing is, these lies create conflict. I have a running theory, and see if you can prove me false, is that at the core of every conflict, there's a lie or multiple lies. You might believe it, they might believe it, you both might believe it, but at every conflict, both in, in, uh, interpersonal relationships or even on a global scale, there's, there's a lie. So you think about the news right now, Ukraine and Russia, what is the lie there? The lie is one nation believes that they're entitled to the resources of another nation. There's always a lie at the center of conflict. And the third thing is that lies enslave us. Jesus' famous line is, know the truth and the truth will set you free implying that if you believe lies, those will enslave you. You believe false narratives, you have false expectations, you have guilt and shame and fear and addiction, greed, self-righteousness, those things will eventually enslave you. So if you believe that your value is found in, let's say, your job and success, you know what's going to happen? You will be enslaved to your job because lies will always enslave us. Eventually, the lie will meet reality, and when you are not living according to reality, there will be consequences. And so lies always end with some sort of consequence. So here's the solution. We've got to take back control of our minds, and we need to learn to combat the lies that the enemy is telling us. First one is we've got to know the truth, right? We've got to be able to identify which ones are lies. Jesus in the wilderness, the way that he did this was he spoke God's truth back to Satan and said, no, 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 no. that's not what's true. That's not what's real. Here's the, here's the truth. The problem is Eve did this too. She quoted God's word back to Satan, and yet it wasn't enough. Why? Because she didn't love God's truth. We have to learn to love God's truth, saying, I love this more than I love my own desires and my own wants. I love the truth. So uh, real quick, I, I gave this illustration back, uh, back when I was a junior high pastor, and it just popped in my head this week. Doyle said, you know, one of the things that we allow happen is we allow, uh, we allow Satan to take a foothold in our life, meaning we just give him a little peace, just allow him to have just this little corner of our life. And it reminded me of this illustration I gave back in the day, it's silly, but I think it works, is there's a young couple, and they were trying to buy their first home. And they're looking, and they finally found the house that they really wanted. It was in the neighborhood that they loved. They thought, we can have kids and, and raise them here. And, and they found a house that they could afford. It was under market value. And so they went in, and they, they talked to the owner. And the owner said, you know what? I like you guys. I want to make a deal with you guys. Let's figure out how to get you in this house. And so they're drawing up the paperwork where they're going to be able to buy this home. And, and there's one stipulation in the contract from the owner. He says, I want to own one nail in this house. One nail? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to own a nail? There's like tens of thousands of nails in here. But this is like an incredible deal. This is where they want to be. And so they say, fine, we'll give him one nail. He can have one nail in this house. So they sign the paperwork. They move in. They love the house. And one day, the woman is standing in the house. 
and she hears the front door open up, and her husband isn't home, and so she thinks, okay, well, maybe it's him, and he's coming home, but it's not. It's the previous owner, and he walks into the middle of the kitchen, and he has a hammer and a nail, and he nails this right in the middle of the backsplash, and he walks out. Doesn't say a word. She is obviously freaked out. She calls her husband. Husband calls lawyer, calls the... They're looking at the paperwork, and they go, look, he, he said he could have one nail in this house. He didn't say where. And this is where he wants his nail. What are they going to do? They're stuck. And so they just continue on, life as usual, and eventually it happens again. This time he walks in, and he hangs a hat on the nail, and he walks out, and she's going, what is going on? This is crazy. Fast forward, it happens again in a couple of months. This time he walks in, he takes the hat off of the nail, and he puts a stinking, rotting fish on it, and he walks out. And they call the lawyers, and what are we supposed to do about this? They go, that's his nail. You can't touch that. He owns that. And eventually, it begins to not only consume the kitchen, but the entire house with a stench. So bad that they can't even live there any longer, that they have to move out. And the whole point of the story is, and I used to tell junior hires this, you give him one little nail, he'll take over the whole house. Same is true with us. You give him one little foothold, one little addiction, one little secret, and he will take that and he will expose it and then he will take down the whole house. And so the last thing that we need to do is we need to lean into community. Is Eve was isolated when she was tempted. Jesus was isolated when he was tempted. I've come to think that the last couple of years, because we've had two years of isolation, starts to explain why we've seen so many people drop off the page when it comes to faith is because they were in isolation. Because we must have people around us that will be strong when we are not to encourage us, to keep us accountable, to remind us of the truth. And so I want to end with this, and I'll be at just a couple minutes uh, over, I think, but I have you seated here, so it's going to be fine. Um, I want, to, I want to give you two just real practical examples of this. Some of you guys are going to be offended by this, and that's okay. Um, just remember it's Jesus. You can talk to him, yell at him if you want. It's not me. Um, one lie that we've come to believe is be true to yourself. How many times have we heard that? There's different versions, of course. There's you do you, keep it 100, love yourself, live your truth, dance to your own music, follow your heart. And what these are saying is our highest value should be authenticity. Which if that just meant don't be a hypocrite, yeah, that's good advice, but that's not exactly what it means. What this means is that you should be yourself, meaning you should look within, find out what your deepest desires are, and then express them externally to the rest of the world. You should not conform to the world's expectations. You should make the world conform to your expectations. You're in charge. Now, right off the bat, I can see that this is a problem, that this is a lie. Obvious question, what if you suck as a person? <laughs> should you still be yourself? Like, should you still follow your desires? What if you have conflicting desires in which you want two things and you can only have one? Which one do you choose? What if the desires that you have are destructive to yourself and to the people around you? See, as a parent, um, I won't, I, I'm actually trying to teach my kids how to not be themselves. Like, there's little monsters living within them. And if I said, just be yourself, they'd be like, okay, <laughs> who wants to burn the house today? You know, this is going to be great. No, no, no. See, my job as a parent is to help shape and mold them into not what they desire, because that's a horrible idea, to what God desires for them. And so right off the bat, this just seems like a ridiculous idea. Just be true to yourself, follow your heart. You know where this line comes from? 
The original line is, to thine own self be true. It's from Shakespeare. And it's in the play Hamlet, and Polonius is the one who says it to his son who's going off to university. And you know who Polonius is in the story? The fool. (laughs) The one that you're not supposed to take seriously. The one that gets murdered because he's hiding behind a curtain. That's the guy who said it. And we went as a culture and went, I really like that idea, you guys. That's awesome. We should for sure do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Follow your heart. No, that's awesome. (laughs) Don't be surprised when you get murdered behind a curtain if you believe it, okay? That's kind of the point. Okay, no. Um, This one, I like this one better. This is along the same lines, but a little different. The heart wants what the heart wants. Now, there's a new version of this. And you may be insulted a little bit, but just hear me out. Love is love. The idea is uh, that you can't help who you are attracted to and fall in love with. That love knows no bounds, that it's not something you can choose, it's not even logical, it just happens to you. Therefore, we should allow people to follow their hearts and love who they want. Love is love. The problem with this is those who say it and advocate for it don't actually believe it. Because I've noticed that even those who believe that you should be able to follow your desires... They have boundaries. They expect people to live within those boundaries and to control their loves and their desires. So, for example, love who you love unless it's an adult and a minor. Unless it's two siblings. Unless it's a group of people. The difference is not if we are going to draw boundaries around who can love one another and, and be in relationship with another. The difference is who gets to decide where the boundaries are. And what we want to do is we want to say, well, I get to decide where the boundaries are, not God. Well, I want to get to determine who gets to love one another, not who God says can love one another. You know where this line comes from? Well, originally it comes from Emily Dickinson in in a letter that she wrote, but it didn't become popular until 2001. And it became popular in a Time Magazine article with a man named Woody Allen. Now, a lot of you guys uh, are, are too young to know much about Woody Allen, so let me give you just a little background information about Woody. Start with this woman named Mia Farrow, and if you don't know who she was, she was an actress, model, uh, incredibly famous, A-list celebrity, once was married to Frank Sinatra. And she had a bunch of kids, um, some of were biologically her, some of which were adopted, and she went through a couple marriages, and eventually she ended up dating Woody Allen. And they were together for 12 years. They never got married, but they were together. They had their own kids, their own family, biological, adopted. Until one day, Mia came across some pictures. And the pictures were of Woody and her daughter. And they were not appropriate pictures. Turns out they were having an affair. Some people believe that she was underage uh, at the time. Some people dispute that. Either way, super weird and gross. And so they end up breaking up, and Woody ends up not only dating his former stepdaughter, but marrying her at the age of 27 when he was 62. And there is a famous interview in Time Magazine 2001 in which the interviewer was trying to pry out some sort of like remorse or regret from Woody. She asked him questions like this, don't you worry about what the children might feel when their dad is sleeping with someone they consider a sister? And he just kind of brushes off and is like, yeah, I don't know, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think it's a problem. And at the very end of the interview, after he has shown no remorse, no guilt, or even discomfort, here's what he says. The heart wants what the heart wants. There's no logic to those things. 
you meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. And then we as a society went, let's make that the foundation of sexual ethics. I like this guy. I mean, look, he wants to sleep with his stepdaughter and all that kind of stuff. We'll forget about that part, but let's make that the defining ethic of our time. Can you see why that might turn out badly? It's all about us being in control, drawing the boundaries and saying, God, we don't want your authority. We want to be our own. We want to define what is good and evil, what is true and what is false. And so where does this leave us? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next hour and a half. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. I'll, I'll leave you with a couple of questions. And maybe next week we'll try to come to some resolution. First question that popped into my head when I was thinking about this is, well, what are the lies that we're buying into? Like, what are the lies that you and I have bought into? The problem is, is we don't know they're lies. That's the thing about lies. We think that they're true. And so then the next question I, I came up with was, well, how do you find out what lies you've bought into, and how do you prevent yourself from buying into lies in the future? And the simple answer, at least the be- not a simple, the beginning of an answer, and I think the foundation of the answer is Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the truth. See, what you need to do is you need to begin to think like I think. You need to begin to live like I live. You need to see the world the way that I see the world. I want you to spend the rest of your life becoming just like me. He calls it being a disciple. And so the question then becomes, what are you and I going to do to become more like him? Well, maybe we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for... uh, Thank you for this time together, which we get to come, we get to worship, and um, we get to be reminded of who you are. And as a world that seems to be full of confusion and spin and false narratives, and we don't know who to trust, ultimately we come back to the source, the one who created not only life, but is the foundation of truth. And so, Lord, we continue to come back to you and to your truth and build our life upon that. And so, Lord, um, we just pray that you would guide us, you would help us to see if we're believing lies and expose them to your light. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you guys so much for being here. There's tons happening on the patio. Grilled cheese over by the children's building. There's bounce houses. There's Kona ice. All that good stuff. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.